What's up, Llama listeners? Joe here, and I'm excited to announce our partnership with Blazing Star Barbecue. Blazing Star Barbecue is a veteran-owned business owned and operated by Mike Starr, a veteran of over 20 years of military service and a fantastic member of the Llama family. Through his amazing rubs and sauces, Mike is devoted to bringing unique flavors from his world travels to your backyard. And I got to tell you, I love me some Blazing Star Barbecue, especially the Reaper and brand new Scorpion rubs. I absolutely put them on everything, and they pretty much have rendered the rest of my spice cabinet obsolete. Check them out at BlazingStarBarbecue.com and Blazing Star Barbecue on all social media platforms and get your sauces and rubs today. We promise you won't be disappointed. What does freedom mean to you, and why does that matter? I am Jay Lee, host of the Live Free series, and to answer those questions, we are going on a journey with people from all walks of life to discover what it takes to overcome the most significant obstacle on our path, which is our own mind and mindset, and turn it into our greatest asset on our journey to freedom. So join me on the Live Free series as we go on a mission to eradicate enslaved mindsets and to foster freedom. Yo, welcome back to the Llama Lounge, a dialogue on all things life, learning, and leadership. This is Joe Bogdan, and I am extremely excited to have this guest in the lounge with me today, Mike Bassett. Mike is an Army veteran and a civil litigation attorney who has practiced law for nearly four decades. He is the founder of the Bassett Firm, a highly sought-after national speaker, consultant, and mediator. He is also the host of the fantastic Legal Grounds podcast and the author of the amazing book, The Man in the Ditch, a redemption story for today. Welcome to the lounge, Mike. How are you? Hey, Joe. How are you, man? I'm doing pretty good. It's uh, it's Sunday morning here in um, Korea, and it's a little bit cold out there, but you know, life is great. Life is great. How about you? You know, it's going to be, I think, 68 today here in Dallas, so don't <laughs> hate me for that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I kind of miss those 68 degrees. You know, here in um, in Korea, it's funny because I, everybody says there's four seasons, but I feel like spring and fall are beautiful, but they last like two days. Yep. Well, <laughs> here in Texas, you have summer and not summer. Yeah. That's what we get. <laughs> yeah, the humidity there is pretty wild. I was in San Antonio not too long ago, and just walking outside, I was drenched. Yeah, I was in San Antonio yesterday, by the way. It's a great city. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, man. So, um, brother, I'm so excited to have you in the lounge. Um, I've been reading your book, and it's been so amazing. And I just first, I just want to say thank you for sharing your story, because that's actually pretty difficult in itself. And the other thing is, you shared it in a way in this book that's, you know, I read a lot of books and some of them are like 17 times thicker than your book telling the same content. And you're like, why do you have to have like a thousand pages to tell this story? <laughs> and you're, you're just concise and succinct to the point. And I think that that's just, that's awesome. Thank you. I'm yeah. glad you like it. 
Man. So, hey, every time we have a first time visitor to the lounge, we ask that they tell their story because we found that, you know, oftentimes we can glean some wisdom from the stories of others. So um, I know this is going to kind of overlap into the book that we're going to talk about as well. But I guess to start off, how did Mike Bassett become the man he is today? You know, that's a great question. And and a little bit of the stories is because I think you can tell a lot about somebody from where they come. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I was fortunate enough to be adopted by some folks that knew my biological mother. Mm. I was born back in 1961. And my mom at that age was 40, which was older for a woman to have kids those days. Mm -hmm. And my dad had left. And so she moves from Chicago down to El Paso and is working at the El Paso Telephone Company and runs into a woman by the name of Jean Bassett, and they start to talk. And and my mom, unfortunately, Joe, was one of those folks who suffered with mental illness. Mm -hmm. They would call it back then manic depressive disorder, but today I think we would know it as bipolar disorder. Mm -hmm. So I was fortunate enough that Jean and her husband Herbie adopted me when I was young, and so I got to be a part of a bigger family. I am the youngest of five. Uh, and so I go and I live with Herbie and Jean from the time I'm about four, I'm officially adopted at nine and was really raised by just a unique set of people. On the one hand, I had my mom who was an artist who I didn't know the word at the time, but now looking at it was a hippie. She was very bohemian. Mm -hmm. And then I've got my dad, a retired, uh, army officer who went into the army at the age of 14 or 15, went to OCS, fought in World War II in Korea and came out and then landed in El Paso where he retired. So I had the yin and the yang of parents. And I was fortunate enough to be raised, like I said, with older brothers and sisters who taught me a lot. Grew up in El Paso. I think we learned a lot about hard work and hustle from my old man. I think I learned a lot about people skills and empathy from my mom. Grew up in El Paso, went to high school in El Paso, graduated for the University of Texas at El Paso. Met the love of my life in 1979, working at a fast food restaurant. We got married five years later, moved to San Antonio, knew nobody, never been outside of El Paso. You were talking about humidity. Imagine growing up in El Paso on the desert and then traveling to San Antonio, where it seemed like the humidity was 382%. Uh, So went to law school, graduated from St. Mary's, was lucky enough to get a job at the Texas Supreme Court as a briefing attorney, lived in Austin for a year. And then we moved up here to the uh, DFW area, and that's where we've lived ever since. My law firm, the Bassett Firm, uh, celebrates its 20th anniversary on February the 4th. So we're pretty stoked about that. Wow, congratulations. Uh, Thank you, dude. Let me tell you, like my my late mother used to say, the first 20 are the hardest. Mm. (laughs) I bet. In everything, right? (laughs) In everything. In marriage. I'm fixing mm-hmm. to celebrate my 39th. So wow. uh, we always tell each other, my wife and I always laugh. The first we said in December of this past year, the first 38 are the hardest. Yeah. You know, and reading through the book, uh, your wife's amazing. <laughs> so oh, dude, let me tell you, you know what? I, I hate to disappoint your listeners. Mm-hmm. You really needed to interview my wife. That was the person <laughs> people would love to hear and not me. Uh, I think there was a point in the book where uh, you had, you know, you, you had some great news to share. And then she was like, OK, cool. Go take out the trash now. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I think every great partner kind of keeps you grounded. Mm-hmm. And just when you start to get a little big for your britches. Yeah. My mm-hmm. wife is like, that's really great. You got a job at Supreme Court, but yeah. get out the trash. Chief. Yeah. <laughs> that, is, that is awesome. Man. Yeah. So 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 you um you had quite a bit of you know, bouncing around when it came to, to law, like you, you moved around a bit. Can you walk us through a little bit of that? 
Yeah, so I'm fortunate enough. I work at I get up here to Dallas and I work at a firm by the name of Coles and Thompson, which is just a fantastic firm and still exists. And I did that for a period of time. And then I thought, you know what? There was a group of guys that broke off from there and I went and joined them and became a partner. Then a fellow that I worked with there, he and I broke off and started our own firm. And then in 2002, uh, my life sort of imploded and the Bassett firm sort of rose from the ashes. So mm. this is the, I can tell you this, Joe, this is the last law firm I'm going to ever have. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, your, your story when I was, I was reading through it, it's just, it's amazing and it has a lot of ups and downs. And I think the big thing that um, I really took from that was just that vulnerability you were willing to share, you know? Yeah. So what, what drove you to, to write that book? You know, that's a good question. So I think, I think how it all happens mm. is so Jim Stanton, who's a dear friend of mine who plays a big part in this book, had told me for a long time, Bassett, you need to write your story. You need to write your story. And I was always thinking, man, it's just too raw. It's too soon. And frankly, Joe, I thought nobody wants to hear my story. I mean, it's my story. It's not a big deal. Mm -hmm. But in 2019, I got approached by a lawyer that I know who said, hey, listen, we want you to come speak at a, a CLE, a continuing legal education program. And we want you to come speak at lunch. You're going to be the lunch speaker. And I said, great. I said, what do you want me to talk about? Because I was thinking he wanted me to talk about something technical with the law. And he was just real being vague and evasive. You know, Mike, you just talk about something you want to talk about. And it just, you know, whatever sort of really strikes you. So in June of 2019, I'm up in, in Harvard. I go up there for an advanced mediation course. And I would walk a mile to and from class every day, Joe. So I'm thinking about this paper. So the Monday I'm walking down to Harvard, I'm like, okay, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do a talk on things that get under my skin and things I think lawyers need to know. That's my Monday. I'm like, great. Then Tuesday, I'm like, okay, well, that's good. So I, I got I to put some context in it because just me talking about things that I think are important without context is nothing. So I'm like, okay. So Wednesday, I'm walking and I'm thinking, you know, okay, I'll tell what I'll, I'll just tell them that I've had experiences in my life that I think these led me to be have important things. And then Thursday, I'm walking down there and I'm going, you know, I think the only way that this story makes sense is to tell my story. And then Friday on the way, I still remember, I'm walking with a cup of coffee. It's like 52 degrees. It's beautiful in Cambridge. And I'm like, son of a bitch, I'm going to have to tell my story. Hmm. So I sit down and I write it and I give the talk in November of 2019 to almost 200 lawyers. And the, and the reception and the reaction was so humbling and so gracious then the pandemic comes along mm. and I'm thinking, you know, I'm going to be 60 in August of 2021. If I'm going to write this book, I'm going to do it now. Mm. And so I was fortunate enough to hook up with a fantastic writer, Alexander Davis, who helped me frame it up and get it done. And that's really how the book gets written, Joe. But for a friend of mine asking me to do a talk and but for the pandemic and me thinking, if I'm going to ever do this, I've got to do it now. I don't think the book ever gets written. Yeah. I mean, I don't believe in coincidences necessarily. And I feel like a lot of oh, that no stuff way. lined up, right. It lined up that way and it was supposed to be done. And, and, you know, writing that book, I mean, it, it, it was, it, it's there, it happened for a reason and somebody is reading it right now and that that's getting value out of it. Right. That, that there is because for one thing I love about your book, like talk about the transparency and the vulnerability, it, 
we all go through some crucible, like you describe in that, you know, in that book, we all go through what we call the ditch, right? What you call the ditch. And so I, I was hoping that you could share what, what is the ditch? You know, so the ditch, I think, is where you find yourself in life and you don't expect to be there. It's either something you've done stupid like me. Maybe it's a scary diagnosis of cancer. Maybe it's a job loss. Maybe it's the loss of a loved one. And you are literally down in the ditch and you think your situation is hopeless. You don't think anybody's ever been there. And it's really pretty damn bleak, Joe. And when you were in the ditch, you're usually clothed in a lot of shame and guilt. Mm -hmm. And it's not a place you want to be. My belief is everybody ends up in the ditch at one point or the other, Joe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 So would you mind sharing the, uh, the ditch that you describe in the book? Cause do you think, uh, you know, let me, before we even get there, do you think that sure. most of us probably experience multiple ditches in our, in our lives throughout our careers? Yeah, I, I'm really, I'm a true believer that we live our lives in seasons hmm. and there's a season, sometime of dryness. There's a season of joy. There's a season of abundance. And I think, yes, if you live this life long enough, mm-hmm. if you are not living under a rock, you are going to experience ditch moments. Some will be bigger than others. And hopefully, as we get older and wiser, I think our time in the ditch, my hope is it's less traumatic mm-hmm. every time it shows up. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I think that there's a lot of, you know, just learning moments throughout mm-hmm. the ditches that we go through. And, and I think there's a lot of options that we have too of do we want to sit there or do we want to grow from it? That's what you really describe in that book. Yeah. I mean, the choice is, do you want to be bitter and small? Because that's where you will be if you just sit in the ditch or get out and you're you're pissed off. Mm-hmm. Or do you want to take it as a learning experience and say, how can I be a better person? And mine was, how can I share my story to give others hope? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I'd love for you to share a little bit about your ditch, the one that you describe in the book. Yeah. So it, it's a long story, but I can I can do it pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm a seven year lawyer. It's 1994. I'm a seven year lawyer. Uh, and I get a call from an insurance company and they say, hey, listen, we want you to defend a trucking company. So I call the trucking company and the, and the director of claims, the guy that handles lawsuits and lawyers, his name's Sam. And, and we start doing Sam's work and we start with little cases and we do well and we get bigger cases. And so then uh, this other lawyer and I leave our firm and start a new one and Sam's business follows us. Now, Sam is the director of claims, Joe, for a, an umbrella of trucking companies that run all over the United States. So when we start our, our new firm back in 96, he is hiring us you know, from, from El Paso to Marshall and Dallas to Amarillo. Every time he gets sued, he's hiring our firm. And it's a lot of work and it's good work. And he is one of those clients that knows what he's doing, listens to you, lets you do what you need to do. And he was always very hands-on, Joe. So if we had a big deposition, if we had a mediation, if we had a trial, he was going to come in the night before and to be there the next day. So he and I went to dinner many, many times and we broke bread and I got to know his family. I mean, you sit around and have a two-hour meal or with somebody 20 times, you get to know them. He got to know my family, Joe. He came out to my house and broke bread around my table with my family and even went to mass with us. And so he's a guy that has got a national footprint and he was very well regarded. You know, he was just a big personality. And if if you were in the trucking industry, you knew Sam or you knew of Sam. And he got a lot of perks and he was always very generous. 
And so in late 2001, I got a big box in my office and I opened it up and it is full of Green Bay Packers swag, signed footballs, signed jerseys, team prints, stuff he knew my sons were going to love. And they did. And so I called him. I said, Sam, thank you, man, for this. This is great. He goes, Mike, don't worry about it. I mean, that's the kind of guy he was. I was not at all surprised, Joe, that he did that. And he said, did you get what I sent you? And I said, no. I mean, I saw two footballs, these jerseys. He goes, no, there's some for you at the bottom. I said, okay. So I dig everything out. And sure enough, there's an envelope, Joe, in the bottom of the box. And it's got three checks in it totaling about $10,000. And they're all made payable to me, but they are not on any cases I am working on for Sam, because I, I know this. So I said, you know, Sam, there's got to be a mistake. I see these three checks here. They're made payable to me. Checks never get paid payable to me. And and these aren't cases I've got. He goes, no, no, no. Uh, what I want you to do, I want you to take those checks and I want you to run them through your law firm's trust account. And then I want you to take 25% of it and I want you to give me 75% of it. Hmm. And I said, no, I'm not, not going to do that. Right. And he said, okay, well, here's what you can do. I've made the checks payable to you. You just go cash them and give me the money. And I said, no, I'm not going to do that either. I said, Sam, this is how well I knew him. I said, Sam, do you need me to lend you 10,000 bucks? I mean, are you, are you just in some sort of financial strait? Do you, is somebody sick? Do you need money? And his tone changed, Joe. And, and, and he said, here's what you're going to do. You're going to take those effing checks and you're going to cash them and you're going to give me the money. And if you don't, I will tell everybody in the trucking business that you have lost it. And I will pull every bit of my business from your firm business at that point, Joe, that I remember was about $500,000 a year. Right. So I'm at a crossroads. Do I, do I tell Sam to go to hell, call his boss and say, Hey, by the way, your director of claims is embezzling money. Or do I cash the checks, give him the money and shut up. So one of the things I have learned, Joe, is that morality and ethics, whether they're legal or religious or otherwise, sometimes get pretty weak when the reward for doing what is wrong or the fear of doing what is right is big enough. So I cashed the checks and I gave him the money. And, and my life at that point would forever be changed. Fast forward, during a routine audit, Sam's employer discovers, guess what? He's embezzling. I learned later to the tune of a million dollars and not, he would send these checks to lawyers all over the United States, Joe, and he would send them to you if you did his work in Montana. And these lawyers were taking 25% for themselves, sending him 75%. And I learned later that some of these transactions were in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. So in January of 2002, it became obvious to me that the FBI was onto my involvement with Sam's scheme. So I drove home to tell my wife that I had ruined our lives. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I still can't share that conversation with you, Joe. It's still too raw. Mm -hmm. But suffice it to say, she's smart enough to say, dude, you need a lawyer. So uh, I went and got a lawyer uh, who sent me to a psychiatrist. Uh, I had to hire another lawyer because of the state bar grievance. And then uh, we had to work through all of that. The net, net of it was uh, I pled guilty to one count up in federal court uh, a federal judge sentenced me to 90 days in a halfway house. And just for anybody thinking a halfway house is not like a little white picket fence house on a, uh, a little lane in a small town. It's in, it's just 
uh, it's industrial. I mean, it's part of the U.S. prison service. So I had to do that for 90 days from January to April of 2003. And uh, I had to go through the grievance process and I got a public reprimand, but I was able to keep my license. But during all that, Joe, that's when everybody cut and run. Everybody bounced. I mean, I was a pariah. You're you're in the military. I was in the military. Dude, word travels fast. Mm-hmm. And word gets out when you have absolutely beefed it and are radioactive. Right. And so we had to build a firm from nothing with two clients, all right? Mm-hmm. No place to practice and a banker that gave us a line of credit. And that was February 4th, 2002, a week from last, from yesterday, we opened the door with five people and had 162 files. And this last week, we have 13 lawyers, 37 employees, and we just opened file number 3,722. Wow. That's the story, very condensed. Yeah. So... Mike, do you mind, because I know a lot of people that are listening to this are probably not very um, savvy to terms when it comes to legal terms or... or sure. What is embezzlement? And Because to understand what Sam was trying to do and why he was trying to do that. Yeah. So embezzlement is you take money from your employer, mm-hmm. his employer, and you pocket it for yourself. Either you steal it directly. I mean, literally think about someone working at a cash register, Joe. And just taking money out of and put it in their pocket. That's not their money. It's their employer's money. Sam just did it a little bit uh, more, I guess. Mm, how should I say it? Uh, he was more sophisticated about it because he knew he had access and authority to write checks, and so he would, you know, send those checks to other people, all of whom I understood it um, would take a cut of it. And, you know, those were not for claims that anybody handled. Those were just straight up checks that he wrote that got cashed and then money was kicked back to him. In a nutshell, that's what it is. Yeah, no, I I appreciate you sharing that because I think that, you know, there's these terms that we hear often and I think we we attach our own versions of definitions to them. (laughs) Yeah. So, so it makes, it makes a lot more sense um, when you put it into that context. So, yeah. You know, you're going through it, it, something that jumped out at me when you're telling that part of the story was, you know, you're the reason why you made that mistake, you know, was to avoid something that inevitably happened anyway, because of, you know, you in losing client, you know, it inevitably happened anyway. And isn't that life? I mean, that happens so often just like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The thing you want to avoid ultimately is the thing that ends up yeah. happening. And in my case, you know, my fear was, well, gosh, if I don't do this, he's going to pull his business and tell everybody that he's referred business to me that that I'd lost it. And there was going to go all this business and the firm was going to blow up. And like you said, guess what? The firm blew up mm-hmm. because of my stupidity. Yeah, and, and, and this was a self-inflicted. This was a self-inflicted in the ditch. Joe, mm-hmm. I want to be real clear about that. This was a stupid decision I made. Yeah. And, and, you know, something about that, though, is I think that it's easy for people to judge your situation looking out, looking in. Right. But when you're not in it, right, when you're in that circumstance and all those things are happening and you're thinking about providing for your family and and everything else. Right. That comes along with it. uh, People really don't know what they would do in that situation. You know, they could say that they know, but like in reality, it's, it's a lot more difficult when you're sitting in it. 
It really is. And, and I think people, if you ask people, you know, if in this situation, what would you do? I think they will say in the abstract, oh, I wouldn't do that. Mm-hmm. But I think there's a big difference when you are on the, the razor's edge and you're faced with that. Mm-hmm. Let me tell you, it's not as clear cut as it looks. And one of the things I learned, Joe, from telling my story and, t- and, and putting out my book is lawyers call me and they tell me stories, man, that curl my hair mm-hmm. of the things that they have been involved in. And you know, some of them have walked away mm-hmm. and said no, and some of them have in, engaged in them. Mm-hmm. And so it is not, I used to think that I was the only idiot, if that makes <laughs> sense. And, and I was the only one that ever made a bad decision. But let me tell you, there are a lot of people who are confronted with things worse than mine mm-hmm. on a daily basis in this job. Yeah, I bet. And, and yours was, you know, it, it seemed like a big number, a big number attached to it. But how many people do small things like that regularly? And it just kind of drift and drift into it. You know, I mean, it might be like taking a $20 gift here that's inappropriate or whatever. And then that just turns into something um, a slippery slope, right? I mean, you could easily drift that way. Oh yeah. Because you know, well, I've done it before. It's nothing bad in the past. Mm-hmm. I'll, you know, no one's getting hurt. It's just this. Yeah. And yet, you know, mine went from zero to a hundred because I had never had anything like that with Sam. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just hadn't. Mm-hmm. But obviously, it was something that he knew he was going to do because he had done it with lawyers all over the country. Right. Right. I mean, do you think was in the book, it kind of alludes to it. Was he playing 3D chess, like playing the long game, like becoming oh, your I, friend? You know, yeah. Well, yeah, I, I think that he I think he became my friend because he's he was a very friendly guy. Mm. But I think he also sensed a vulnerability. And, mm. you know, it's that whole Godfather thing. You know, I'm going to get do a lot of favors for you. At some point, mm. I'm going to come to you and ask for a favor. Mm. And he would always been so generous and everything that I think sort of set it up like that. Now, again, I could have absolutely told him to go to hell and call his boss. Mm. But I think, you know, there may have been a a lot of just probing and figuring it out. And, you know, when a dude's sending you a half a million dollars a year in business, mm-hmm. there's a lot of dynamics in play. And, yeah. and I will tell you, Joe, something similar to that has happened since then in the mm-hmm. not too distant past where a client kind of alluded to, well, listen, we need to work something out. And you'll be glad to know that the response at that point was pretty immediate and pretty severe that started with, uh, a four letter word and you and come pick up your business <laughs> because you know that I've been there, done that, got the t-shirt, not doing that again, Joe. Right. Which means it still exists. Right. Oh yeah. Yeah. I'm positive. I mean, there's, there's so many just circumstances. And like I said, I think that most of the people probably listen to this aren't even going to be put, aren't even likely to be in a position like you're in because just by circumstance of profession and everything else. Right. But, but there's that same opportunity to have an ethical lapse or even fall into an ethical dilemma where you have two values just conflicting with each other. I mean, that that's a possibility too, because if Sam really became your close, close friend, and then you suddenly had this bond of loyalty to him. Sure. Right. I mean, then you, then you got this whole integrity loyalty thing, right. And then you got loyalty to your family. I mean, it could just, you can almost freeze in that moment. You can. And I froze and then went with the default, which was to protect what I thought was important at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it happens and it's quick. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that happened. You, 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 you found yourself in the ditch. Mm. In oh, the yeah. ditch. I dug it nice and deep too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you're sitting there looking at the walls of the ditch and, and, and now you got an option. 
right? You got a decision to make at that point. What was that decision? Well, really the decision was made for me, Joe, because um, this all happened. I don't remember on what day of the week it was, but I remember that weekend uh, I, I was sitting on the couch talking to my wife and I said, here's the deal. I'm throwing in the towel. I'm done. Okay. I'm radioactive. Uh, everybody's blowing up my phone, wanting to know what the hell's going on. Clients are dying on the vine. I'm going to prison. I'm going to lose my license. I'm giving it all up. And my wife looked at me, Joe, and and said, no, you're not. You were meant to practice law. That's what you're going to do. That is what you're going to do. And I thought, oh, Liz, you're out of your mind. No one's ever going to do that. But, you know, she's brilliant with numbers. She's still the CFO of our firm. The next day she gets a business plan together. We go to the banker. He gives us a line of credit. And then one thing falls in place after another. And it was, I mean, I was at a real crossroads there because if it had been up to me, Mm -hmm. if it had been up to me, I'd have just said, forget it. I'm throwing in the towel. And and like I say in the book, I'm not too proud to say it. You know, if I didn't think that it was life after this life, I would have ended it all. And I'm going to be honest with you. There were times that I just thought, you know what? It's just better for me to end all this than put everybody through this heartache. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's a huge point that to bring up about, you know, having something that you, that purpose and that faith and something to be able to keep you upright in those situations. Um, and, and yeah, I, I just think that's amazing. And you know, the other thing too, is we need a Liz in our lives, right? Yeah. <laughs> All of us do. And, and at the Lama Lounge, we talk about assaulting through life's circumstances, right. And, and the dealings mm-hmm. that come with it. But uh, we always talk we, we say assaulting through is not an individual sport, you know? Oh, oh no, you need a tribe. You got to run with a tribe. Yeah. And I have learned that you run with the tribe and you've been in the military. I was in the military. You understand, you understand that bond that's created, but every one of us needs to establish our tribe. Because like I say in the book, Joe, if you want to see how nature does it, watch, watch Nat Geo one time. Um, when the hyenas go to take some sort of prey, the first thing they do is separate it from the herd. That's the first thing they do. Yeah. And that's the first thing when you are going to be taken down, they're going to try to do is separate you from the herd. That's why you've got to have a community. You've got to have people that you can reach out to and say, man, I'm struggling. I'm in a really hard place right now and I need your help. And that's why I talk so much about it because I've got friends and and you may have friends that felt Joe like they had nowhere to turn to and they ended up taking their lives. And, and we have that opportunity and obligation to keep those people close. And, you know, it's funny because that that's such a true statement. And even when we just make dumb decisions, it's like it typically is when we're alone to our own devices, right? I mean, I, I, I we have airmen get in trouble all the time here in Korea, and ninety nine percent of the time, they're they lost their wingman somehow throughout the evening, and they probably had too much to drink, right? And and things. Right, which is a microcosm mm-hmm. of what happens to us because we become separated. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, from, from our tribe. And we need those people to say, Hey, knucklehead, right. What are you doing? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's people, like I said, I want to go back to it. Like people will look at something like a decision that somebody's made and just automatically assume that they could never be in that situation or that they would never make that decision. And I go back to this, um, the, the, 
the movie Lone Survivor, there was that part where they were having a decision on what they were going to do with the old man and the kid. And one of the guys was like, oh, I would just kill him. Like right. we talk about that, you know, have that conversation and people would like quickly go to the point where I would just have to kill him. I was like, have you even ever killed anybody? Like, <laughs> do you know that you could do that? Well, one of the things I talk about in the book that I've learned is every one of us, Joe, is one left turn away from being in the ditch. Mm-hmm. Every one of us. Yeah. And if you're fortunate enough to have been in the ditch and gotten out, you learn that lesson. And that's, I think, where the humility comes in, where now when I learn, uh, read about a lawyer who flames out a DWI, criminal problems, a divorce, gets sued, loses their license. You know, the old me would say, well, obviously, they didn't take care of their stuff because they ended up in that position. And now I look at them and say, you know what, that could just as easily be me. Yeah. Yeah. It just could as easily be me. Yeah. And I think that's it so could. important. Yeah. It could. And, and I, I, will, I won't say I worry. Yeah, I worry about people who are so set in their belief, I would never do anything like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, because they have probably, probably haven't reached a level of self-awareness, right? I mean, they just haven't gotten there. Yeah. Right. Or, or had enough in, in play, enough chips mm-hmm. on the table to see, really, what, what is in play here? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I wanted to touch on something that you bring in the book, um, and it's about brokenness. And I think it's just such an important thing. And and I I highlighted this. I'm going to read this. It says, a posture of accepting my own limits and realizing that it was through, not in spite of my brokenness, that I was going to make an impact through the way I lived my life. And when I read that, that was just a, a powerful line. I mean, you know, we talk about it's like, you can't just try to dodge the storm. You got to go through it. Right. And, and the brokenness, you have to experience it. Um, a lot of us do, right. A lot of us, you know, we have to experience it. And I just, what, what were, what were you, can you elaborate a little bit on that thought? Yeah. And I think that thought came to me, Joe, not initially, but when I realized I was going through this and I was broken, but it was through my brokenness that I think I could reach out to others mm. because I could say, listen, I have been, I have been there. I have done this. I have suffered these wounds and let me reach out to you because it's in that brokenness. Cause I believe this vulnerability is one of the strongest threads in any relationship, whether it's friends, whether it's leader subordinates, whether it's in a team, it's vulnerability where you can say, man, I am really scared and I made a huge, huge mistake, or I'm really worried about this. And when you can do that, when you can acknowledge your brokenness, I think that gives other people, Joe, the okay to kind of open up. And so you can really build those bonds, but you do, you have to have a lot of uh, self-awareness. And I use the term in the book, you got to do a lot of deep inner work. You have to, and you've got to do a lot of self-reflection to get to that point. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think we all go through these lives and then even listening to this episode and this conversation, people can probably go back and end their life and see these, these circumstances where they were, you know, in a ditch and the brokenness and think about how, how they can get out of it, how they got out of it. And I think that, you know, just your book and the conversation we're having right now gives people permission to tell their story as well. I hope so, because let me tell you, there's some people that have some great stories, but also remember this, Joe, this, this imbues people with hope so that then when you run into somebody in the ditch, because you will, if you have your eyes and ears open, you can be that person that maybe pulls them out and brings them back to where they can really contribute and then share their lessons. 
because it's so easy to walk by and say, that dude, he is just a hot ass mess and it's all of his own making. And I would never do that. And I don't have the time for him. Yeah. You know, if nobody stops and helps out the other person, then we're all just going to be in the ditch, Joe. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you used a term that I, I, I love, uh, dumbassery and we're all, <laughs> we're all victims <laughs> of it. Right. <laughs> it, it, we, we really have to, you know, to think that, you know, we've, we're all susceptible. What, what that dumbassery looks like could be different for each of us. We're all susceptible to that and we need each other. Well, I think we really do. That's why you need to keep your people close and have people that hold you accountable. I mean, you know, uh, at the military, I learned that, you know, there's a lot to be said for a hot wash. Mm-hmm. After we get, after we do something, let's all just say what we're feeling with knowing we're not going to hold it against each other and, and be vulnerable. And I think the more we do that in our lives, Mm-hmm. As leaders, especially, I think the better we are because that makes us approachable. Mm-hmm. It, I, I, I talk to some lawyers and leaders who say, "Why? Well, I, I would never want my my team to know that I struggled with X, Y, or Z." And my thought is, why not? Why not? Right, right. And and I talk about this quite often. I think too many of us are focused on impressing people versus inspiring people. And there's a big difference, you know, impressing is showing them you're Superman and they don't, they might not feel that they can do what you do. So they might be impressed, but they're not inspired, you know, because they don't think they can be like you, you know, they're not inspired to make a difference at that moment. So I think that's very important in that, that vulnerability, you know, that, that does create that, that, that environment of psychological safety where people can actually feel like they can talk about it. Yeah, I think so. And let's be really clear that humility, and I say this in the book, humility is not a sign of weakness. Mm-hmm. I think humility is a sign of real strength. You so show me somebody that's truly humble, and I will tell you that is a person that is strong to their core. Yeah. Anybody can peacock or, or bow up, Joe. When yeah. I see people do that, I will tell you the first thing I think of is that person's scared. They're yeah. fronting. Yeah, they're insecure. Just you know. absolutely. Yeah, yeah, that, that that happens quite a bit. And I think you know something else about humility. I love that you brought that up. Is it's something we can hone. It's not something you're just born with or you're not, right? And yeah. it's not something that just comes through experiences. You can continue to practice humility to make it a habit. Yes, and it's not well. I can tell you, it's not a muscle that I came with because mm-hmm. I used to be ten foot tall and bulletproof. Yeah. And there's a time in our lives, Joe. I mean, that you do need to instill that confidence. Mm-hmm. But you also have to have the other side of it where, you know, folks will realize you'll listen to them and say, you know, I was there once and I made a mistake and, and let me help you through this. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you're touching on something else. I think it's a really important leadership tool is discernment to be able to discern when and who you can, you know, maybe bear your soul to mm-hmm. and, and show that vulnerability. Because I think that, uh, you know, when you talk about how everybody just ran for the hills after, you know, the, 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 the it hit the fan, right? And everybody just disappeared. Yeah. When I look back at those moments in my life, I see those as blessings because I realized that they weren't my confidants. No. You know, not those people that left, that just bailed. Um, it's good to know that. It's good to know. Well, like I say in the book, it's good to know the one from the other. Mm-hmm. And I would always want to be judged as the person mm-hmm. that reaches out. So a little a little side note to that story uh, my story that's not in the book is there was a lawyer that I knew that I knew very well during my time of flaming out. And, um, he was somebody that I expected to reach out to me and he just walked on by. And for a lot of reasons, I thought he would reach out and he never did. Well, oddly enough, 
some years later, he found himself in the ditch and he went to federal prison. And then he got out and decided he's a lawyer. He's, he was going to reapply for the bar because, you know, if you've been disbarred and you want to get back, you've got to wait five years and take the bar exam. And I saw that he had been released. I heard from somebody I knew that he had been released. So I reached out to him. And I said, man, how are you? And at first, I think, I, I don't know what is, I don't know what he was feeling, but at first he was very standoffish and really didn't want to talk about it. So I called him three or four months later and said, man, how are you? And that progressed to re rekindle the friendship. He then got to the point where he said, would you write a letter for me on, on my behalf to get reinstated to the bar? And I said, man, I'd love to, I'd be honored. So you know, you've got to reach out to people because it would be so easy for me, Joe, just to remain bitter and pissed off, right? right? Just burn down everybody that ever passed you by. I don't think that's how we want to live our lives, man. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Uh, there's a lot of people that walk around with a chip on their shoulder that they manufactured and they <laughs> continue to drive off of. Yeah, and, and you know, I, I think there's so much good out there. And I think people generally are very good. Mm -hmm. We just are broken. I mean, all yeah. of us, all of us have the ability to do great things, Joe. Mm -hmm. We've also got the ability to be really, really shitty to one another. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Yes, man. So Mike, you know, I don't want to go over all of these because we don't have the time. And also I want people to go buy this book and <laughs> get sure. in there, but um, some tips, cause you talk about the big nine in, in your book. Yeah. Is there a couple that you, you want to um, just talk about, maybe elaborate on? One or two. Yeah, I, I think I would want to do three of them. The first yeah. one is gratitude. Yeah, I, mean, I, I believe that we have so much to be grateful for. And I don't know about you, Joe, in your life, but I will find what I'm looking for. And when I get in that negative space, everywhere I turn, things are broken. Everybody I think about is, is just completely screwing up. Mm -hmm. And so I think we all could practice a lot more gratitude and be grateful because it's amazing what you start to see if you look at the world through a lens of gratitude. So I, I think that's one of them. The second thing I, I really want to talk about is loyalty. We have got to be loyal to the people in our lives. That doesn't mean that doesn't mean that we agree with what they did. I mean, Jim Stanton, probably one of my closest confidants through all that, never said I would have done the same thing. In fact, he said, you're an idiot. What you, I can't believe you did that. And yet, he was loyal to me. He could do the yes and. Yes, you're an idiot and you're my friend and I am going to stand by you. Because I will tell you, man, if you are known as somebody who's loyal, I think that is really a good, a good trait to be, I guess, accused of. And the last one, I think, is this concept of community. Because we as, I can only speak from my perspective, we as men who are very competitive or in leadership roles, sometimes thinks that it all, it all rests on our shoulders, which I think is just complete bullshit. Yeah. I think we need to have people that we can turn to when things get tough, because if we do that, I think we can avoid a lot of our own self-inflicted wounds. And if I've got to pick three of them, I think if I could do nothing else but hone in on those three, I would be a better version of myself tomorrow yeah. and the next day. Yeah. I mean, those are great ones. They, they are absolutely, I mean, gratitude, we just take it for granted so much. And like you said, I mean, I walk around it 
you will find something that will piss you off if you look for it. You will find things that are messed up. Like I, I talk about it often. I was like, the only time I don't see stuff messed up is when my eyes are closed, you know, <laughs> like, like there's stuff going on all the time, but there's also so much things, so many blessings out there, you know, and, and within us that we should be grateful for. And when we, we do see life through that lens, um, to me, you start seeing the world through adult eyes when you really start looking at that. I, I think so. And then when you do that, you see all the things that are going well. And all of a sudden, your decisions are driven by one of gratitude and happiness versus punitive or retributive in nature. Right. Because that's how you make your decisions. I, we often say around here, we've got, a, we've got a fantastic team at our firm. And these people, these lawyers, uh, this staff, they make a thousand game day decisions every day, Joe, a thousand of them. And so we drop the ball twice. Mm-hmm. I mean, think about it. You could be the National League batting. You could get the National League batting title in what, bat 320? Which means for a thousand pitches, 680 of them, you either get hit in the head or strike out. Yeah. And you only get a third of them. So I think if I look at our batting average, we yeah. do fantastically. Yeah. Yeah. It's why I talk about us, you know, we're in a civil engineer community, so things are breaking all the time. We're not able to keep up with work tasks out here. And, and I tell them, it's like, it's often, you, you got to just try to play like you're a, a major league catcher. You know, in this position, you hit about, you know, 250, hit a couple of home runs when they count and play good defense and you'll be fine. <laughs> you'll be fine. Right. And more importantly, step up to the batter's box every day. I mean, mm-hmm. persistency and consistency, Joe, mm. that'll get you so far. Lord knows I am not. I am not the smartest lawyer hell in this firm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I may be the smartest lawyer in this room because I'm by myself, mm-hmm. but I work with people that are are so much mm-hmm. smarter. But just showing up every day, Joe, will get you so far. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I remember one time I was... Um... I was in a race. We were doing a, a 5k or something. It was some type of race. And, uh, you know, we're, it was a, it was a combined forces race. And there's, there's some Spanish guys that showed up. They were just so fast. They were just so fast. And I was like, Holy smokes. And I was like, man, those guys are some of the fastest guys I've ever seen and this and that. And then my commander said something like, well, how do you know if they were actually the fastest? Cause they won because, you know, maybe the fastest person didn't even show up. And I was like, why do I care about the person who wasn't willing to show up? <laughs> Right. <laughs> right. Like, oh, that's a weird way to look at it, right? I mean, like, yeah, I'd yeah. rather be the one in the arena bloodied than the one sitting in the stands. 100%. 100%. And you know, that loyalty thing, I love that you brought that up because there's like a false dichotomy that, like, you feel like if I'm loyal, that means I have to agree with everything you do. I always have to, you know, get, praise you. And, like, no, I'm loyal because I'm willing to tell you that you effed up today but I still well, care about and as, you. <laughs> well. And as a leader, don't you yeah. want to surround yourself with people that are loyal that say, Hey boss, not a cool deal right there. I, mm-hmm. I think that's a bad decision. Mm-hmm. That's who you want to be surrounded by. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Those that can actually give you a reason to dissent. <laughs> right. Yes, exactly. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. I love, love what you said about the community too. I think as, as men, like, like I said, I, I started looking at the world through adult eyes. And I realized, you know, what I thought a man was supposed to be when I was young, the stoic figure and this and that, like, that's not the correct version of what I want to be as a man. So generosity being caring, um, those are all things that a man should be. So I'm really grateful you brought that up. I I tend to agree. I mean, there's people that will disagree, but let me tell you, I find my life is much richer Mm -hmm. uh, when I try to be that way. And it's amazing the great things that happen. Yeah. 
<laughs> man, Mike, we got to have you back on again. I think that we can oh, take this conversation in so many different directions. It's it's fantastic. And you have an amazing podcast. I've been listening to it. Um, how do how do our listeners find out more about you? Sure. So if you want to find out about the book, just go to themaninthedditch.com. It's on Amazon. It's on Target. Uh, it's available all over. Uh, if you need to reach out to me, you can just go onto the Man in the Ditch website, put your email in, and I will respond. And I'm always happy to visit with folks and talk about the book or talk about the lessons that I continue to learn every day from my time in the ditch, Joe. Thank you for having me on. Awesome. And your podcast is available on all podcasts. Oh, podcast is, yes, on all, all uh, platforms. It's called Legal Grounds, mm -hmm. Conversations on Life, Leadership, and Law. And we have a lot of fun. We talk to all sorts of people. And yeah. it's one of those things that, again, was born during the pandemic because I was just hearing so much negative stuff in the news. And I thought, you know what? There's some good things that we need to share. Yeah. So if you dig the podcast, like I say, you may kind of walk away irritated, but my thought is at least you've listened. Yeah. So if you <laughs> want to check it out, it's on all the platforms. Awesome. Awesome. All right. Now, before we can let you go, uh, we, we always end these with what we call the leadership rapid fire. And it's just a series of four questions Hit it. And, and it's however you want to interpret and however you want to answer. All right. I'm Question ready. number one, what is your favorite leadership trait and why? Uh, humility, because I think it shows really the product of deep work and introspection. Mm, awesome. All right. Next question. What is your favorite quote? You know, uh, the shortest one is, is uh, Churchill, never, 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 never mm. give up. Yeah, love that. <laughs> All right. Third question. Um, what is a book that you would recommend to an aspiring leader? Uh, wow, so many of them. You know, one of the ones I would recommend is David Brooks wrote a book called The Second Mountain. Mm. And it's really fantastic. And then um, who Sebastian Younger wrote a book called tribe mm, love that, that book. I think is, yeah, I think is really good. And the third one, I think I would recommend to any leader is just an old standby, the seven habits of highly effective people. Man, you're, you're speaking to my heart right now. When, whenever anybody asks me, what's the one book, if I could only just do one book for leadership, I always say seven habits because you know, oh, there's yeah. so much personal leadership, personal mastery that you get out of that. That's a, that's a once a year read book. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Awesome, man. And then the final question is the deep question of the day at the Lama Lounge. We're all about life, learning, and leadership. So how does Mike Bassett find his harmony in life, learning, and leadership? I find my harmony in helping other people and mm. mentoring to people. Um, and the vehicle of it is I do my best work with people. I think over coffee or breakfast, oh, yeah. listening to people, listening to their stories, because I think everybody wants to be heard, Joe. Everybody wants to belong and everybody wants to feel needed. And if you can do that, I think you're doing pretty well. Yeah, fantastic. Mike, thank you so much once again for coming on the lounge. And I'm not joking. We need to have you on again. You're very kind. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Stay warm and soul. 
Oh yeah. Yeah. I'm going to do my best. And to all the listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. Um, I know you got some nuggets out of this conversation and a special thanks to our show sponsor, Blazing Star Barbecue, Mike Star, veteran owned business, sharing some amazing flavors from his world travels, bringing them to your backyard. Uh, just check out the Reaper rub. I love it. Reaper is king. It's amazing. And, um, and as always be safe, stay healthy. Llama's out. Thanks for tuning in to the Llama Lounge podcast. Be sure to visit the homepage for links to products and services related to this episode. And don't forget to subscribe to the show on your podcast platform of choice. See you next time.